Um, let's begin here. We're going to be in John 7 this morning. Let's begin with this word, desperation. Desperation. What comes into your mind when you, when you hear the word desperation? Maybe it's summarized in the French artist. Uh, I, I knew his name when I came into it. His last name is Gorbe Guave. Is it Guave? Gustav? I wrote his name wrong on my notes. I was like, it's not Guave. I know it's not Guave. <laughs> And I was like, I'm just so thankful Wesley said, I'm going to go and change this for the 11 o'clock. Um, and it's not Guave. You know, I think, I think it actually was Siri that changed it. I, I, it's, uh, okay, so we're going to, it's Gustav? Gustav, okay. Um, desperation. We're going to start all over. With Maggie and Lauren, will you guys come back up here? We're just going to reset this. <clears throat> Um, desperation. So uh, a French artist named Gustave uh, Courbet, who I'm, well f- I'm very familiar with. I love his work and, uh, so much. <laughs> he has a, a self-portrait um, called The Desperate Man. All of that for this moment. Worth it or not, I don't know. Um, but The Desperate Man. So in this photo, you see a lot happening. That photo, this piece of art. You have his eyes. You have his hands. You have his face just kind of filled with this place of desperation, um, this complex emotions. And in one sense, this, this word desperation might be a foreign word for us. It might be a, a word uh, in a world of plenty that we just don't experience very often. You know, hunger or physical thirst, someone in a life or death situation. Um, your mind might go to the experiences of the evil of Hamas when you think about desperation. So there's a, a physical side of, of desperation. In another sense, it's, it's far too familiar. In one sense, it's kind of that physical side that we may or may not be aware of. And then on this other side, there's this spiritual component of, of desperation. There's a, a desperation we were, were made for it. We were made for this posture of desperation. It isn't first physical. It's a, a yearning of the soul. It's a, a yearning for something beyond us. It's a, it's a spiritual thirst. Uh, the philosopher Dallas Willard He says, you're a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means you were not made to be self-sufficient. So our soul is the computer that runs who we are and integrates our mind, our will, our emotion. It it runs so much of who we are. And see, we were made for God. So in a real sense, we were made to need God, and we were made to be desperate for God. The African bishop in the fourth century, uh, St. Augustine, he echoes this sentiment, and we've said this before, we'll say it again. He says this famous quote, that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless, desperate, until it rests in you. See, our dilemma with this desperation is that we are, we are kings and queens when it comes to numbing ourselves from this internal feeling of desperation. We live on a planet of lost souls, and our human problem is that we are lost and we're not aware of it. And we try to run from the desperation we feel from within. We have a thousand ways to seek temporary uh, ways to avoid this desperation that we all feel. And in 2023, numbing is king, right? Like we, we know all too well how to numb. And distractions are everywhere. And we, we can't hide from distractions from the blue screen in our pocket and our ability to numb and to avoid this thing called desperation within. We, we avoid, we numb with substances, we spend with impulse, we overeat, we overwatch, we gamble, we do all kinds of things just to try to numb what's going on under the surface. Psychology would say we have positive co- coping skills and, and negative 
coping skills. And we learn some coping skills in how we grew up and how we saw our parents learn how to deal with stress and anger and angst and those types of things. And negative coping skills are, are things that we use to, to decrease stress and numb pain for the short term. In Psychology Today, it says we use negative coping skills because they work, but only for a while. They give us temporary relief for the pain, a momentary breath without holding the weight. But then that negative coping skill becomes just another thing we have to overcome. It is impossible to outwill trauma, to outachieve it, or to ignore it into oblivion. So in an age of materialism and consumerism that tries to buy happiness, that tries to deal with this human dilemma of desperation that we feel, seeking promises from the world that it can't fulfill, we find ourselves in this place where we pay attention to all these other things in life except for our own soul and the desperation we have here. Dallas Willard goes on to say, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. You're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. So desperation is removing the layers and coming face to face with who we are and who we are made for. So this morning, as we climb into this text in John chapter 7, we're going to find a clear invitation from Jesus to find the solution to the desperation that he invites us into. We're in this part B of a teaching series in the Gospel of John. The first part, we navigated through this kind of phrase, come and see. In John 6 through 11, time and time again, we're going to hear this phrase, I am. Wesley mentioned it last week, I am the bread of life. And throughout the rest of these next several chapters, we're going to hear this phrase frequently, not every single week, but on a regular And this morning, we're going to hear the summation that Jesus is the I am the one who can satisfy your soul. He is the one who can satisfy your soul. We're in John 7, starting in verse 1, says this. After after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So this phrase is interesting. The Jews were seeking to kill him. Again, we're in a narrative. We got a guy named John who's writing this gospel, this narrative, because he wants the people that are reading it to experience the life of Jesus, to believe upon Jesus, and to find the life that Jesus offers in their souls. So he's writing this beautiful narrative. And in it, he's wanting to provide tension Because there's tension that exists in the life of Jesus. And there's this tension as the narrative builds where people wanted to kill Jesus. Over and over again through the Gospel of John, as the Gospel moves on, we find this regular rhythm of a desire for the people to kill Jesus. He ends up, he's doing this for a reason because half the Gospel, starting in John Chapter 12, he's going to begin talking about the last days of Jesus before his death. He spends half of his gospel on the last days of Jesus' life. And so he reminds us that Jesus is being sought and people are wanting to kill him. They're aggressively seeking to destroy Jesus. So John is trying to make that clear. But what he also wants to make clear is that no one can lay a finger on Jesus until his time is come. At the end of this gospel in John 7.30, it says this, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him 
because his hour had not yet come. So he's on this mission, but he wants us to feel Jesus is in the driver's seat the whole time. There's nothing preventing him from his mission to redeem and to rescue. He wants us to feel the reality of people trying to destroy him, and yet no one, no thing can get in his way, that he is in complete authority. It reminds me of uh, what Abraham Kuyper said, where he says, there's not a square inch of the universe over which King Jesus does not say, mine. So he isn't just some helpless lamb. He is an unstoppable, unrelenting lamb. He's one who came to sacrifice himself. But he has complete authority along the way and he wants to, John wants us to feel that tension. That John wants us to feel his impending hour of death and his immense power along the way. He wasn't just some victim to violence and evil. He was on a mission to destroy it. He doesn't wink at injustice in our day or his. He came to deal with the dragon, to remove his power, and he will come again to destroy the dragon forever. And that's the story we're a part of. And so when we hear a little phrase, like his hour has not yet come, or we hear a little phrase that his people are wanting to kill him, I want us to feel the weight and the, the magnitude of Jesus on a mission wanting to destroy death forever. The story continues in verse two. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So he has this discussion with his brothers, and the beautiful thing about the humanity of Jesus is that he knows everything that you've gone through. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. None of his brothers understood, believed in this moment. And so if you felt misunderstood before, so is Jesus. He's a high priest that sympathizes with all of our human realities. And so there's this large feast that's happening in real time, the Feast of Booths. It's called Sukkot in Hebrew. It is a reminder of the Hebrews' journey when they were in the wilderness. And so for a week during this feast, the Jews would would live in temporary homes. They would build a, a booth. They would build a tent, and they would stay in this for a week as an outward act to remember God's faithfulness. So during this time, they would construct these booths, and they would live in this place, and they would remember that God was faithful through the wilderness. It's this celebration that's right at the beginning of the fall festivals and the fruit of the ag- agricultural time. And so there's remembering, there's relaxation, there's feasting, all of this happening in the Feast of Booths. And, and his brothers tell him to go up, to join the caravan that's going to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no thanks. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. He knows that if he enters into that group, it might force or fast forward his time that's not yet come. 
Maybe it's the motive of his brothers that he was aware of, or maybe it was the intent of those who were trying to kill him. We don't really know, but we do know that he said no to his brothers. And the story continues in verse 10, where it says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. It's kind of funny. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And so he ends up going, but he doesn't go with his brothers. He doesn't want to go with the caravan that's going. He goes in private. He has a plan to do what he wants to do in this moment. Again, a mission drove him. He came at the very beginning of John. We see John the baptizer say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And throughout this gospel, we're remembering his specific mission to rescue the world. And it's Worth mentioning, man, friends, we too are on mission. I know we can forget it. I know for sure I can forget it. But like our king, we too are invited into the kingdom of Jesus. And we too are invited into hope. And we too are invited into sharing hope and living out hope in our lives. And we too are challenged to not just live for ourselves, but to live for the world around us. And in this, we're reminded that Jesus was on mission. He's invited us to do the same. We fast forward to verse 14, and it says this. By the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews, in verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man was learning? This man was, has learning when he has never studied. So during the feast, on his own watch, it's, it's kind of interesting because he wanted to hide, but then he ends up teaching in the temple. And it's like, Jesus, what, what are you doing? I'm kind of confused. But, but he's on a specific mission, and this is what he knew he needed to do. And so he goes in, and, and they marvel. That word marvel, they're stunned. They're shocked by his ability to teach and communicate with such authority. How does he teach? He's not, he doesn't have formalized education but he teaches with authority and power. The way he does, Charles Spurgeon mentions this. He has a sermon called uh, One of the Greatest Preachers to Live. Um, He has this sermon called The Unrivaled Eloquence of Jesus. And he says this about this section. He says, let us note the peculiar qualities of our Lord's eloquence. As among kings, he is the king of kings. As among priests, he is the great high priest. As among prophets, He is the Messiah. So is he the prince of preachers, the apostle of our profession. So we see the unrivaled eloquence of Jesus as they marvel at Jesus' words. And then in verse 19 it says this. Has not Moses given you the law? So he enters into pause. So he enters into this temple. He's having this conversation and then he ends up having this discussion with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And, And so again in verse 19 it says Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me, Jesus says. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." 
So Jesus is disturbed at how they've modified the law for their own advantage. And he speaks into it. He points to this healing that happens in John chapter 5 where we see a healing on the Sabbath and, and they can't get over the fact that a man was lame for 38 years, couldn't walk for 38 years, and Jesus chose to heal him on the Sabbath. They can't get over the fact that it was the Sabbath day that Jesus allowed this man to get up and walk. They've not been able to forgive him or move on for that moment. And so much of their discussions are based off of this conversation. And they're up in arms about it and can't get past Jesus' willingness to care for this fella who was lame. He says, guys, you've gotten it twisted. You're caught up in the regulations and you're missing the heart. You're so focused on making sure you do the do's and not do the don'ts and dot your I's and cross your T's and do the things and you've missed it. Caught up in regulations. Caught up in the rituals. I mean, that's the last song that we sang We're going to be so focused ourselves on religious acts that we miss the heart. See, Jesus regularly pointed to the heart, to motives, not what was on the surface. He ends this section by saying, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. That's why we condemn what's happening in Israel, that murder is wrong, like period. Like people want to make this thing political, but murder is wrong. Evil violence is wrong. And we don't want to stay on the surface. We want to say human life matters. It doesn't matter creed or religion or whatever. Like human life matters. And we want to make sure that people are cared for and treated right and fair. And so let's not stay on the surface in politics, but let's deal with the realities that that is wrong and evil. See, they don't know what to do with Jesus here. They have this discrepancy, like we, we know where you're from, you're from Nazareth, nothing good comes from Nazareth, and you speak with honest authority, they don't know what to do with it, with Jesus here, and the tension culminates before Jesus' invitation around desperation, in John seven twenty eight it continues, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So there's this tension that John's providing for us that some are seeking to arrest him and just can't. They're not able to get their hands on him. He's like a, he's like a pig covered in Vaseline. You just can't get your hands on him. And they feel that. They feel like they can't get him. They can't arrest him. They're unable to do it because, again, he's an authority. And they feel this tension because people are believing that he is the Christ. He is the promised one, the one who's going to fulfill promises of God. And the texts go on, and we see this culminating moment in John chapter 7, the moment that Jesus invites us to this answer to our human problem around desperation. In John seven thirty-seven, these few verses are beautiful. <clears throat> it says this, and on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living 
water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This little phrase is on the last day of the feast. Again, Feast of Booths. Again, seven days of staying in a tent. Some of you, like myself, don't like to camp. And so we glamp if we do anything, right? And so this is seven days of rugged, they don't have nice bathrooms where you can go to and wash up, okay? So seven days of rugged tent camping where you are remembering God's faithfulness in the wilderness. And on this last day, there's a unique, unique moment that happened. <clears throat> In Judaism, there's, there's common reminders, external things that you do that are, are designed to draw your heart in. And that's what spiritual practices even are designed to be for us, spiritual discipline. So on this final day, you had some limbs, some branches. Each branch had um, signifying elements uh, that were valuable to the moment. And so in your right hand on the last day of the feast and on the left hand uh, on the last day of the feast, you held branches if you were uh, participating in the feast of booths. One was called the lulav, which was a, a myrtle tree tied together with a willow tree and palm tree and those types of things. Some of you don't even know what a myrtle tree is, like myself. And then on the other side, you have the etrog, which, which was a citron tree, which was a lemon-based tree. And so you have these limbs, these branches that you're holding. You can imagine like, like on Palm Sunday, how we have uh, palms. It's like that. They have these branches in their hands, both hands occupied. And one of the priests would carry this golden pitcher and he would lead the people in this procession to the Pool of Siloam. We introduced, we learned about the Pool of Siloam in, in John 5. And they'd go to the Pool of Siloam and they'd fill up this golden pitcher with water. Much dancing, flutes, trumpets, uh, this musical procession is taking place. You can imagine the ruckus of the last day of the Feast of Booths. And the priest would fill the pitcher of water again in the pool and to turn around and lead the people back to where they were going. And worshiping was happening, celebration was happening, happening, dancing was happening, and he immediately would go to the altar where the sacrifice of animals was taking place. And he would pour the water into a funnel which led to the base of the altar. And he would do that seven times. And during that time, they would recite Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So the end of Psalm 118, it says this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the symbolic purpose of the water ritual, you have these high points, these moments pointing to the water that's taking place here. And then one of the final things they say is, again, the water is being poured to the altar they read Isaiah 12, 3 and 4. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name 
is exalted. So on the seventh day, the final day, the altar is drenched with water. And on that final day, in no uncertain terms, Jesus declares, this feast is about me. The water in the gold pitcher is about me. The water that flowed from the rock in the wilderness is about me. The promise of refreshing water and salvation is about me. Come and drink. So we have this moment. I love this invitation. So aware of our own desperation, I surely am aware of mine more times than not. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, again, branches in hand, celebration happening, water everywhere. And Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, anyone and everyone, atheist and drug addicts, CEOs and the lowly of lowly, Jew and Gentile, Democrat, Republican, sexually confused, substance abusers, single, married, young, old, divorced, widow, widower, He invites the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Pentecostals, anyone who's thirsty, anyone, anyone, and then he says, who thirsts. The thirst before us is purely a spiritual kind. Anyone who is honest enough, self-aware enough to say, I'm desperate. To be honest enough to put aside the numbing mechanisms and to say, no, for real, I feel desperation in my soul. If anyone who's thirsty to say, "I, I need what the world can't give me, a spiritual thirst, a spiritual bankruptcy to say what the world promises will not fulfill. This is the one prerequisite that Jesus gives. If anyone's thirsty, and a world of self-soothing promises that lead to self-worship, whose gifts always are hollow. We're invited to thirst. And then he says, come and drink. And this is my hope, week in and week out. When I come up here, when I share from the text with you, week in and week out, my hope and my prayer is that we would come and drink. My hope and my prayer is that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not looking to merely educate. I do aim to educate, but I want to do much more than that. I want to set a feast before us and say, come and drink. Come and fill your soul with the one you were made for. To be reminded of the goodness and kindness and care and provision and grace and steadfastness of our God. Isaiah 55, 1 Wesley mentioned it last week, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. The irony that you have no money and you buy. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You go to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And that the one who is thirsty, come. That the one who desires, take the water of life without price. You hear the common thread in Isaiah and Revelation? The water's free. It's not based off of our own merit. It's not based off of our own earning. It's not based off of our own resume, what we've done or haven't done. That Jesus paid the price for us. He's made a way for us. And we are invited to drink. 
Our invitation is to come and drink. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, what a glorious gospel sermon that is, that was speaking of this text. It comes to us down through the ages and is as true now as when Jesus spake it. Again, he's speaking in the 1800s. Ho, thirsty ones, come ye to him and drink, and he will slake your thirst and create in you a well of living water which shall bubble up forever and ever. Friends, there's a desperation that was built within us, a yearning of the soul, a yearning for something beyond us, a spiritual thirst. And we're invited to not spend our life trying to fill it with things that aren't going to fill it. We're invited to remember that we were made for the Lord and our heart is restless and our heart is desperate until it finds rest in God. To remember again what Dallas Willard said, that you are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means you were not made to be self-sufficient. So friends, we just close with this invitation. If anyone's thirsty, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Streams of living water will flow from our innermost being. That's the invitation for us this morning that Jesus sets before us. And the question is, how? And it begins by faith. To recognize that in our own five senses, the things of this world will not give us what it promises. You can search and you will find this world will not give you what it promises it will. And yet by faith, we're invited to experience the life of Jesus by faith. And oftentimes it's through spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices that we lean into. It's through setting aside time. It's through turning our phone off or putting it away. It's through spaces where we slow down and we sit maybe with a cup of coffee in hand, maybe with a friend across the table and we open the scripture and we pray and we quiet our souls and we remember that we were made for God. So that's the invitation for us this morning. If anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are we running from being thirsty? Do we feel too uncomfortable with that? Are we just searching for anything to fill it, to scratch it, to, to, to avoid it? And I would just say to you, those numbing mechanisms will not work. They might work for a second, but it'll lead you hollow, lead you frustrated. And yet Jesus offers us another way. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. To find life in his name, to find joy in his name, to find peace in his name. It doesn't mean that life becomes easy. It doesn't mean you get what you want. It doesn't. But he provides something that only he can. Peace for our souls, rest for our souls, life for our souls. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we begin with just a moment of confession where we'd say, I'd say, that I'm tempted, allured, drawn to want to settle, want to numb, want to avoid. And I just confess it's not working. Confess that it's not giving me what it said it would. And so, Lord, we gather 
Not because we got it together, because we don't. Yeah, there's a hospital. And we say, there's one surgeon. There's one doctor who can heal. And we look to you this morning. We thank you for the story that you're writing. We thank you for the grace that you've supplied. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for your care, your pursuit. We thank you that you've created a table. You've set a table for us to feast and to find life in your name. And so for myself and for my friends, this body, this community this morning, we pray, Lord, we'd feel comfortable in being thirsty. And we'd feel your draw to find life in you. Lord, on this fall morning, reset our hearts. Reset our hearts on the offer that you give and the life that you supply. Lord, where cynicism reigns and rules and speaks, Lord, help us to just have faith like children to find life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.